Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we are here for the Invested Podcast where we are absolutely figuring out the best investing strategy in the world, which not surprisingly comes from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and Ben Graham. And some people call it value investing. I don't like that name. And I'm teaching my daughter, Danielle, who's this brilliant attorney, merger acquisitions slash uh, startup corporations, author of the invested book, which is, is number seven on the New York Times intro. bestseller list. Listen to me pitch this whole thing. This is great. This one gigantic <laughs> plug here. <laughs> So welcome to the podcast, guys. We have a really exciting announcement today, which is, dun, dun, dun. Dad, do you want to say it? No. What? (laughs) (laughs) We've been invited to join the Panoply Podcast Network, which is so exciting because they publish the Wall Street Journal podcasts, the Slate podcasts, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. They just have such great content and they really enjoy our show and they asked us to come join them and it's such an honor and we are so excited about it we are so big time so (laughs) by the way this podcast is ranked one of the top nine money podcasts by u.s news and world report we now have over twenty thousand people a week downloading this and i know it sounds like not a lot compared to (laughs) you know um, you know two hundred thousand a week or whatever but it's growing really fast. And you guys are the reason because you're telling your friends yeah. to go and listen to the podcast. You guys are sharing it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's like so cool. So we want to thank all of you so much for making this a big home run success. And um, yeah, we're we're excited. And and I, do you want to say anything more about that, hun? Because Well, the great thing about being with Panoply, besides just being with Panoply, is that they're putting us out or putting our podcast out on new platforms. So it's going to be even easier for you guys to listen to our podcast. We're going to be on Spotify now. Super easy to find us. I don't know if you use Spotify like I do, but I listen to it when I go running. So I'm really excited about it. And, um, and iHeartRadio as well. So we're even easier to find and easier to listen to. And, uh, and we're just looking forward to getting better and bigger as we go on. So thanks to all of you. And now let's talk about this amazing Monish Fabry article we've been talking about. We promised to continue today with his checklist and the way he works alone because it's so interesting. So let me just preface this. If you missed the last two, the article we're talking about is this um, interview with the investor Manish Pabrai, which is on Forbes.com. And if you just search online for Forbes, Manish Pabrai, P-A, sorry, P-A-B-R-A-I. And um, it came out at the end of June. It's an interview with a guy called Kevin Harris, and it'll come up. It is. I think it's called uh, Manesh Pabrai's Advice for Value Investors. It's Forbes, June 25th. Exactly. Exactly. And it's so, so it's good. It's just such a good interview. And I put it out on all my social outlets when I read it. And then I just kept reading it over and over. I saved it in my notes and I kept reading it. And I thought we got to talk about this on the podcast. So we've been doing that now for two episodes. Um, I also, I feel like I'm throwing in a lot of information today, Dad. No, yes. <laughs> you are, you are, but it's great. Uh, and okay. I'm, I'm seeing we're gonna go swing. I can't help it. I've got to say this. 
when we're working with working through a document like a Monash Pabrai book or a Buffett letter um, or a Charlie Munger video, um, I want to I want to do make this I want to make this point that if you were to ask these guys, can the average person just go out and invest and be successful? My guess is that they would be um, somewhat skeptical about the, that possibility. And I think oh, interesting. this is- What made you think of that? Well, I was thinking of it because it's, I think the internet has made all these tools available to us and all this information available to us is incredibly parallel to the development of the printing press, making the tools of literacy available to the average person. And hmm. I'm quite certain that the priests at that time, and I will, will say that in the investing world, the priests are guys like Buffett and Munger and, and Pabri and Guy Spear. And, I mean, these are super successful guys. And and um, I think it would be roughly parallel to say that the, the priests, the clergy, the people who are wealthy, the aristocracy, um, who were given the tools of literacy to some degree before books were printed, would be incredibly skeptical about the ability of the average serf to uh, learn to read and to be able to participate in the major decisions of government. I guarantee you back back then they would have been like, no chance. These people are sure. dumb. They can't do this. Right? Yeah, total class-based society, no movement sure. between the classes, the end. Sure. And, and so you, you listen to Buffett or Munger this is for my skeptics in the audience here. You listen to Buffett and Munger, and you'll notice that Warren says that he's advising his family to just put all of the Buffett uh, fortune that's left after he donates most of it, um, put it all in SPY, right? The, the S&P 500 index uh, ETF, and just leave it alone. Forget about it, and everything will be fine. Um in other words, he's telling us that his own, he doesn't even really trust his own family to invest the money. Um, whereas we're out here saying, hey, the hold on, that's a big leap. This. You're saying he doesn't trust his family? Maybe well, they don't. I, I want wouldn't say that. I, I, that's a big leap. I would say that his family has given him no indication of a skill set that would be. Uh, no, again, sufficient. huge leap. Okay, leap. I leapt. But what are you thinking? Is, what's wrong about my leap? Your your leap is in a total assumption that they do not have the skills, that they could not do it if they tried. And you don't even know if they've tried. Well, I totally think they could do it if they tried, but I think they have to want to learn. And I don't yeah. I just don't think they've wanted to learn. I think they're like you in large degree. Right. That's why I'm defending age... the crap out of them. <laughs> You've managed to make it three decades without having any desire to listen to me whatsoever when it comes to investing. And I think Buffett probably has the same thing going on in his family. Um, right. But th that is a, a very different situation than a situation of him evaluating his family and saying, no, they are not able to learn to how to do this thing that I do. It's not that different. If you weren't learning to invest, <laughs> then I would probably, you know, if I'm getting to where I've got to be looking at my will a lot, I'm going to be thinking, hey, Danielle, my advice to you is to put it all into SPX, SPY, yeah. because yeah. you don't know how to do this. Not yeah, because you're not capable. I, I don't think Warren would say he's not capable because these guys know that this is a game where 160 IQ 
does not beat somebody just a normal IQ. Not even, I'm not even saying the word necessarily, does not necessarily beat. I'm saying being really super smart is probably a disadvantage in in this game. <laughs> you you well, want to just be a person who's just capable of sitting quietly, doing nothing most of the time, doing a substantial amount of reading to to get better and better at the niche that you've picked to invest in, and and then be patient. And that's it. Th those are the key elements that make me confident that you are becoming a very, very good investor. And I just don't think Warren feels like his family has ever gotten the bug to do it. No, and and I it doesn't seem like they have. And also why would totally they? Fine. If, if somebody's if dad's handing you uh, ten million dollars to you know for pocket change, why would you go to the trouble, right? I mean, if it's not yeah, your I don't know. I mean, his grandson is very interesting, and I met him. We met him briefly at his meeting, and and uh, and and definitely does investing. So you know, he's picking third, it up. You're very right, but that's third generation. So first generation makes it. Second generation becomes rock stars, and the third generation takes the fortune and builds it back up again. But I do want to say that you're, I think you're sort of getting on uh, an argument that Buffett maybe thinks regular people can't learn this kind of investing. And I would have to argue against that because he has spent his life educating the masses, so to speak, yeah. about the way he invests. He certainly did not have to spend the kind of time he's spent in the last 70 years writing the letters that he writes and giving the speeches that he gives and holding the meetings that he holds unless he wanted to teach people oh, who are I, like I think the people he, listening to this podcast. Oh, I think he absolutely wants to teach people. And I think he's absolutely in an uphill climb. And I think he recognizes that after 50 years of writing letters that people don't seem to understand by and large. I mean, think about this. In 2008, at the Buffett annual meeting, he made it very clear he would love to see Coca-Cola drop 50%. And there was an audible moan in the audience because all these people are like, oh, no, that means our stock will go down. And it's like you could just almost see Buffett wince because he just like, really, after all of these letters, you don't understand that we're consuming stocks and we want the price to go down so we can consume more at a lower price. Honest to God, you people still don't get that. And the answer is most of them don't. Yeah. They just don't. So what about what about this interview with Munish Pabrai made you think of this? Well, I'm just thinking that, you know, I, I just think if you went and asked these guys, they're out there saying something parallel to what people would be saying hundreds of years ago before Gutenberg invented the printing press. And that is that here's how you do it. You know, reading is pretty simple. You got to learn the alphabet and you learn how to pronounce things. But any, you know, the idea that anybody could do it hadn't yet kind of taken over from the clergy, right? They, there's a certain element of just like, and, and I think, honestly, there's a certain element among the clergy back before the printing press that would say, why, why would we give up this edge, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have all of these people who are sort of the priests of value investing, who are some phenomenal investors, 
And you have this very small number who are willing to talk about it a lot. And those are the guys we keep talking about. That's the Buffett, the Munger, the Guy Spear, Monesh Pabrai, me. There's there's a handful, really, who practice this and, and write about it and talk about it and tell people how to do it. Um, and still, it, it appears that no matter how much we write and talk about it, the vast majority of people simply aren't going to be interested enough to learn it. They just won't. By the way, I'm almost <laughs> quoting Charlie Munger right there. He says, somebody asked him, how come, if you guys have been teaching this all this time, how come more people don't do it? He said, it is one of the real um, interesting conundrums of value investing is that we talk about it, we talk about it, we talk about it, but he says there seems to be no movement toward value investing uh, among professional fund managers more today than 40, 50 years ago. They're just not going there. And we've talked a lot about why that's the case among professionals. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think that we- But you sound really investors. down. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just saying it, it's a little bit of a, an, I'm just inoculating our listeners, our fans oh. here at, at Invested. I think it's worthwhile to inoculate a little bit against what's out there in the world, which is an enormous amount of skepticism that the individual can invest. And if you haven't run into it already with your family telling you this is a waste of time, you will almost certainly run into it. I certainly did. When oh, I, started I got you. So for somebody who is coming to us newly and starting to listen, you're saying this may not go over so well in the general population. Right. <laughs> right. They're going to think you're telling, crazy. I was telling the people I just did um, a, an online live course about like getting over the fear of starting investing with people. And That's I've never cool. done anything like that before. Did and you it was start that course. Um, it was about six weeks ago and it just finished. So I'm going to awesome. do it again soon. Awesome. But I told everybody on there, one of the huge parts of learning my investing practice for me was realizing that this was something that other people may not totally understand and may even sort of give you like the side eye on, you know, because mm. What people used to say to me, I mean, they still do, but I just have a different answer now. So when you start learning this stuff, you don't buy companies. Like the whole point is that we learn and we practice and we spend a lot of time getting better before doing anything. And, um, and so people, I'd say, oh, you know, I'm kind of learning investing and doing this like on the weekends. And they go, oh, what do you own? And I go, well, I don't own anything yet. I'm learning. And they just go, oh, okay. And turn away. Uh, like as though, because I hadn't bought a company, I wasn't serious. Mm. And to me, that goes pointedly to what you just said about long-term value investing, not taking hold in people's minds as being a good strategy as being a real strategy. People think of the stock market as something that you are constantly owning lots of stocks in and you're in and out and you're trading and you're speculating. And that's what somebody who like invests, so to speak, and I'm making air quotes, um, does. And so if you're somebody who's careful and slow 
and only buys a very small number of companies over your lifetime, which are all the things that you and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger teach, and certainly Monish Pabrai talks about in this interview, then to sort of the general population, we don't seem serious. And so part of the practice is kind of embracing that and loving that and realizing that, yeah, like this is something people don't really get unless they're into it. And then once you're into it, it becomes the best thing. This, this sounds really crazy, but it's, it's one of the best things in my life. Oh, honey, this is so <laughs> sweet. I love that. <laughs> I love that. And and by the way, you're making a point that um, Roger Lowenstein made in, in the book that Monesh Babrai references. Um, uh, what is the name of this book? Do you remember right offhand? Your segue is incredible. Yes. Thank you. It is called, I have it in front of me, in fact, uh, Buffett, uh, The Making of an American Capitalist by right. Roger Lowenstein. Right. And what he points out in the book, what Lowenstein points out is that um, until Ben Graham came along, with uh, a book called Security Analysis and a whole approach to the market that uh, said basically you're not gambling if you focus on buying businesses and um, and understand what you're buying and you buy them with a margin of safety. You're not gambling at all. Until he wrote that book in 1934, virtually everyone in the market, everyone that's that wrote books back in the 1920s, uh, many of which I've read, they were all gamblers. They were inveterate gamblers. They were rolling the dice on everything. They were putting it all on the line. And this is why so many investors were, you know, were uh, just devastated by the 1929 crash because they were, they were not what we would call investors today. They were just rolling the dice on the market going up or on 10 stocks going up or whatever. And, and Lowenstein points out that really what what Graham did was just absolutely revolutionary. Nobody had ever looked at buying pieces of a company as the same as buying the entire company. So you had two really different mm -hmm. groups of people, Danielle. You had people who bought companies who were wealthy capitalists and industrialists, and they would buy companies and they would grow them. And then you had gamblers who were willing to roll the dice in the stock market on a piece of that guy's company about which they knew nearly nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, there's yeah, there's a wonderful a point. there's a wonderful thing in Anne Rand's book um, Atlas Shrugged, where she talks about um, this this famous um, mining uh, mining entrepreneur named what is it De Franconia I think anyway he he was famous for having developed one great mine after another great mine and making millions and millions of dollars and. What he did, of course, Atlas Shrugged is about a group of people who decide that they're going to tear down the system. And so DeFranconia creates a fake mine and he, he sets it up so that all of these people will invest in his fake mine in Mexico and they'll all go broke. They'll lose billions of dollars um, because they were not willing to do the work to figure out what was really there. Hmm. And he he sets them up and knocks them down like bowling pins. And they're horrified that they've invested with this guy and he's thrown away their money. Right. So mm -hmm. it's very much like back in the 30s when Ayn Rand wrote that book. Um, investing was just gambling, buying pieces of a, of a company was just gambling. Just nobody thought what you did 
was what Ben Graham suggested you do, and then what he taught Buffett, and then what Buffett's taught us, um, is you treat it, when you're buying one share of something, you treat it exactly like you own the whole mine. You own DeFranconio's mine, so you better know what's in there, right? Right. It's, it's on that level of difference between gambling and investing. And what we find all the time in our classes, honey, and what what is one of the toughest things for me to overcome when I'm teaching is the desire of people to have it happen right now, to get it right yeah. now. Yeah, right yeah, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. Make it happen right now. And as a result, we're constantly trying to pull people back from the brink of throwing money into something they barely understand. Um, and, it, it, and it's just a, a human tendency to want to rock and roll, right? And so when you totally. brought up this point, Well, especially when you're learning something new and yeah. we're excited about it. Of course we want to be quote unquote doing something, but that's where the practice is so important because that's oh, the doing. It's not that's the buying the and it's not, not the selling. Not the buying, not the selling. I love it. You've, you've, you've actually changed something Charlie Munger has said, and I like your phrasing of it better. Charlie said, you don't make money when you buy stocks. You don't make money when you sell stocks. You make money while you wait. And what yeah. you're saying is, not really, Charlie. I mean, you're being a little bit uh, curmudgeonly there because you don't make money when you buy and you don't make money when you sell. You're totally right. But you're not just waiting. You're not sitting on a deck looking at clouds. You are actively practicing. And, and what practicing means... Practice, is, is reading, researching, reading. learning right. about the companies you're interested in. It's reading the it's, news. It's if you're going to be in, you're going to be interested in Disney, then you're going to go understand Disneyland. You're going to take your kids to L.A., Anaheim, go to Disneyland. You're going to go and see Disney World. You're going to understand Disneyland. You you want a burrito company? You're thinking about it. You're going to go eat their burritos and talk to the people behind the counter and the people who are ordering and ask them what they think about it. You're gonna, and you're it's, gonna, yeah, and it's also getting used to the emotional part of it and dealing with your fear, dealing with being afraid, being able to emotionally be comfortable buying and selling a company and being in the market. And I know that that's something you never had to do, but <laughs> some of us have to. <laughs> yeah, I've never had to do it, but I, I also have paid the price for, for not being particularly uh, nervous about my decisions, right? Um, because if you're not nervous about your decisions, if you're not a little bit afraid of what you're doing, it's it's almost like if you don't if you don't it's because you don't really understand what's going on. You need to be nervous to a degree um, until to to kind of drive yourself forward to do the hard work, the hard work of the practice, which is to show up every day, do the reading, kick the tires, get into the retail stores. Do the work and keep doing it until you're not nervous anymore, until you're very confident, until you really know at a high degree of comfort that you could put the family's money into this for your retirement. And you're very, very confident that it'll be worth more 10 years from now. Now, where you don't know, you know, the range of not knowing is going to be how much more is it going to be worth 10 years from now? Is it going to be worth a little more? In which case, you know, it's like putting my money in the bank for for 10 years, I'm not going to have a lot more, but I'll have a little more. Or is it going to be worth, you know, eight times more, 800%, 1,000% 1, 
uh, more. You don't know because of the vicissitudes of life, as Charlie says. But yeah. if you buy with a margin of safety and you buy where you understand the business, the level of certainty you have should take away the nerves almost completely. Well, and acknowledging that we are human and we make mistakes and people who work in those companies are human and they make mistakes. And right. therefore we have a check on ourselves in the form of a checklist, right. which Monish Pabrai talks about, which we talk about in our book, Invested. And and before we get to Monish's checklist, I really want to read this excerpt from the book you just brought up, this book about Buffett that Lowenstein wrote. Can I can I read it? Because I think it's really cool and relevant to what we're talking about here. All right. Well, if it's relevant, then yes, go ahead. Oh, but if it's <laughs> irrelevant, then I'm not. This is my podcast, buddy. <laughs> Um, whatever I call, oh my whatever God. I call my husband, buddy, he goes, excuse me. So now That's I'm right. like, oh, I just said, buddy. That's um, right. Okay. Fire away. Let's see what goes, you got, girl. Buddy. I said, well, yeah. kind of. Um, <laughs> now I lost my train of thought. Why I'm your am daddy. I'm your daddy, this? honey. You're and my I buddy too, dad. That I'm your buddy. Darn right. It's fantastic. <laughs> I know why I'm talking about this, because a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about why Buffett quit his partnership, essentially closed down his fund, which was in the form of partnership in right. 1969. And we were talking about this book. And I said to everybody, oh, I'm going to go look at the book and see what it says about it. So guys, I'm following through on my promise. That's why I have this book in front of me. All right. So that's marginally um, uh, in the thing we were talking about, I suppose. All right, go ahead. Just listen, just listen. So he says, at the start of, I'm quoting now, at the start of 1967, Buffett felt compelled to advise his partners that some of the, mu the newer mutual funds had better recent returns than his own. And he warned that his stream of new ideas was down to a trickle. Sound familiar, Dad? Sounds very familiar. Though right he was now. working night and day to keep them coming, his tone was ominous. If his idea flow should dry up completely, you will be informed honestly and promptly, so we may all take alternative action. End quote. And I think what you had thought was that he closed the partnership down because he was just tired of feeling pressure to invest, right? Well, it comes, but it comes from, I, I okay, before I answer, I'm going to say that I totally agree with what Lowenstein is saying is that Buffett from time to time in his investing career has run out of ideas in large part because the market gets so expensive. You know, it's not hard to find wonderful no, exactly. companies. It's hard to find them on sale. And so when he can't find them on sale, then what he runs into, I think, is pressure. And this is what he doesn't say, is that inevitably, if you don't have good ideas, you're going to face pressure from your investors who are used to... Buffett making 36% a year. And all of a sudden he's, he's thinking he's making nothing and other let mutual funds are doing better. Let me go on. Oh, okay, good. I'm, switching, I'm, I'm turning a few pages here. All right. Um, this part's a bit long, but bear with me. I just want you to think how similar this is to our situation today. In December 1968, the Dow climbed to nine, 990, can you imagine? And Wall Street cast a hopeful eye toward a pair of elusive goals, an end to the war in Vietnam and a 1,000 Dow. 
Buffett partnership clocked a gain in 1968 of $40 million, or 59%. Its assets swelled to $104 million. Bereft of ideas, managing more money than ever, and with the market at a peak, Buffett had had his best year. He beat the Dow not by the five percentage points called for in his lower target, but by 50 points. He said the result, quote, should be treated as a freak, like picking up 13 spades in a bridge game. It was his last hand. The bull market was in a spasmodic death rattle. Wall Street was recommending the popular stocks regardless of price. Merrill Lynch, like IBM, at 39 times earnings. Bach & Co. was pushing Xerox at 50 times. Blair & Co. was touting Avon products at 56 times. At that level of earnings, it would take a buyer of all of Avon half a century to get his money out. Could it possibly be worth that much? A fund manager echoing the prevailing thinking allowed that a stock was worth whatever people think it's worth at the particular time. Every college endowment, he noted, whoever this anonymous person is, felt it had to own IBM and Polaroid and Xerox and everything else, so I think they will do well. Buffett reminded partners of a seemingly lost distinction. Price is what you pay, value is what you get. It no longer mattered. Finally and irreversibly, he had despaired of finding stocks. Wary of jeopardizing past profits, Buffett did a remarkable thing. He quit. He stunned his partners with the news that he was liquidating Buffett partnership. And now at the height of a bull market, he was getting out. And this is a quote from him. I am not attuned to this market environment, and I don't want to spoil a decent record by trying to play a game I don't understand just so I can go out a hero. End quote from Buffett. The courage that lay behind his decisions may be measured in its uniqueness. On Wall Street, people did not fold up and return the money, not at the top, not after their best year. It simply wasn't done. Buffett had plenty of options. He could have simply sold his stocks, put his assets in cash, and waited for opportunities. But every partner was looking to him, see dad? Every partner was looking to him to perform, and he felt an inescapable pressure to lead the league each year. Since the watershed letter of 1967, he had tried to work less compulsively, but as long as he was, quote, on stage, it wasn't possible. And quote from Buffett, if I'm going to participate publicly, I can't help being competitive. I know I don't want to be totally occupied with outpacing an investment rabbit all my life. The only way to slow down is to stop. Oh, and, man. And that is fantastic. So kudos to to Lowenstein to get that all in there. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to summarize what Buffett was feeling with these words that he expressed many years later about people who are managing other people's money. He calls it the institutional imperative. And I have certainly felt it um, when I've managed other people's money. He certainly felt it when he managed other people's money. And as far as I know, nobody really escapes it. And what it is, is exactly what he said is this intense competitive desire to exceed the peer group. And all of them are feeling that. Everybody who's up there managing money has always been extremely competitive. They've always been the best student in the class and all that. And Buffett's no exception. And and so he got to where he was looking at this and going, wow, I'm super rich. I think he was worth like 30 million at that time or something, which it then would be worth about you know, maybe half, maybe 120 million right now today. But he was super rich. And I'm sure his family was like, why are you killing yourself? And, and, and he was killing himself because of this imperative to just do well for the sake of doing well, for his ego, for the, 
for the track record for right i mean yeah and, and, and to do this said, best right, he done. could for his investors yeah i think he, i think he felt that responsibility very deeply absolutely right i think everybody i find it really interesting that monish pabrai specifically isolate he talks about it in this interview he specifically isolates himself he talks about working on his own and that every successful value investor he knows works on their own as a key part of their process actually he thinks that i think he does bounce ideas off of other people but as far as making his own decisions he thinks that that is 100% vital to being a good long-term investor. And I think that the reason for that is that if you're going to be owning something for years, you have to be personally okay with it. You have to personally be able to sleep at night knowing that you chose that company and you're stuck with it. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm getting this, you know, one step removed from Monash himself. So he's never told me this, but um, I, I am under the impression that he does discuss uh, ideas with other people he really uh, he really admires, who are investors, but there's a rule about it. You you don't the pitch the idea. You just you don't take a point of view. You just put out the facts about this company, and try mm-hmm. to be neutral in your sort of emotional content in the. Well, that discussion. comes out of Guy Spears' book. He wrote about it in his book. I don't know if Monish Pabrai is involved in that, but but Guy certainly wrote about it in Education of a Value Investor. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's difficult. I mean, there's this thing called confirmation bias, which is a very powerful emotion that all human beings have that affects you when you're starting to look at a company. You start to immediately uh, want it to be right and succeed and be a home run, you know? And the more yeah. you dig into it, the more time you put into it, the harder it is to see things clearly that should tell you these are red flags. So the institutional imperative and confirmation bias are, are really both brutal things that, that fund managers deal with and is perhaps one of the reasons why the guys who are managing billions and billions of dollars, really, they're so smart and they're so disciplined to be able to do that as value investors. And one of the things that, that all of them do almost without exception, there's maybe a couple of exceptions, is they get out of New York City and get away from other people who are deeply mired in an institutional imperative and confirmation bias and modern portfolio theory thinking and just get away from all of that so you don't get sucked into the herd. And so mm. Buffett's, Buffett's intentionally in Omaha, Munger's intentionally Remember, I mean, Munger went to Harvard. He knows where the East Coast is. Intentionally in Pasadena. Uh, Dan Loeb's intentionally in Malibu, California. Uh, Guy Spears intentionally in Zurich. Monas Pabrai's intentionally. I mean, I think that's pretty true. Like, okay, yeah, it's good, I guess. Like, I don't know. Does it really matter? I mean, as long as you're not in the financial district. Oh, no, no, no. Look, I've I've lived in New York a little bit. You've lived there for a couple of years. It's very difficult to argue that that New Yorkers aren't involved in an echo chamber. I mean, you can hard. New Yorkers tend to agree with each other in politics and economics. That's true of any part of the U.S. or any country, really. We're all in our bubbles. And I... I don't know. I, I, we have lots of people who listen, who live in Manhattan or live in Brooklyn or whatever, and have zero Move. connection. Move away. 
Move away and now. have zero connection to what's happening around Wall Street. <laughs> I just, it's almost like another world, that like Wall Street world. If you don't go down there on purpose, you don't even know it's there. Well, that is true. If if you are living in New York, I will agree with Danielle that as long as you stay away and don't know anyone who works there and don't read what they're writing and don't watch CNBC I mean, I think you might you might be okay, but it's pretty you, easy to do all that. It's pretty easy to do all that, but do it to protect yourself, and that's exactly what Guy Spear wrote about in his book. And Guy, we know, so he had to get out of New York because it's just so hard when you know people on Wall Street, as he did, to break out of the 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 groupthink. It's just extremely yeah. hard. That's what you're trying to say. Is yeah. not I. It's not that you can't live in <laughs> New York. It's that you don't want to be stuck in a group think situation, in a a situation where, as Favrai says, if you have a team around you, it feels like there's an impetus to action. That's what you don't want. Well, let's let's talk uh, uh, next time a little bit about Monash Pabrai's article here. Yeah, a little since more we about like it. barely got to it. Yeah, yeah, we need to talk about the checklists. We need to talk about the checklist, and we need to talk about. Um, his concept of Dondo investing, which we've sort of touched on a little bit today. I really, oh. I really want to talk about those things. Um, the idea of an inner scorecard, you know, to, to help you keep away know, from what's going so, on with so other people. Much. Okay. Now listen, next time we are actually supposed to play this incredible interview that I did with Laura Rittenhouse, who wrote investing between the lines, our very first ever invested book club pick. So you guys, Go get Investing Between the Lines, read it, and then we're going to have this cool interview with her. But, Dad, because I have pre-recorded said interview, we could move it let's to move, the let's one move. I, we, I want to stay with Monash. We're on a roll with Monash. I'm with you. Okay, and, guys, executive decision. Hmm. The episode with Laura, you are going to get one extra week if the dog ate your homework and you haven't yet read the book. The episode with Laura Rittenhouse is going to run on August 21st, not August 14th. So we'll give you one extra week to read it. And go go get it. Because one of the most difficult things for me as a teacher of investing has been to somehow... Um, somehow get across how you evaluate a CEO. It is so subjective and so hard. hard. I have discovered in my life, unfortunately, that even when you do it and you think you've got the right person, they can turn on you and, and become the absolute opposite of the, the values you thought you had there under pressure. And so just to remind everybody you know, character is revealed by pressure. It's not built by adversity. It's revealed by adversity. And that's what you don't see unless a CEO has been through adversity. You don't see who they are. Um, And that's the hardest thing in the world. So Laura has some really fantastic secrets to kind of see the red flags go up. And I she has a really her. cool way of doing it. And if you want yeah. to hear a preview of our talk, we ran a preview a couple of weeks ago. There's a podcast episode where you can hear a little bit of our discussion. So you can kind of see what she's what she's all about. Yeah, so that'll be on August 21st. Mm. Well, we're not alone in say? this. I mean, Warren said, Warren told her once, look, this, this book puts you on the side of the angels. So yeah. it, it's really quite good. Go get it. <laughs> it doesn't all get right. any better than August that endorsement, 21st. right? Right on. There you go. 
All right. And so next time we're going to talk more about this Manish Pabrai interview. Right on. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, you guys. Time to go play. See ya. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, show notes, and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.